No doubt many of my listeners will remember the 2006 film 300, a cinematic adaptation of Frank Miller's landmark graphic novel of the same name. The title, of course, is a reference to the 300 Spartans who led an army of some six or 7,000 Greeks from various other city-states in a glorious but ultimately disastrous campaign against the expansionist Persian Empire at the mountain pass at Thermopylae. Considered by many to be the most decisive battle in Western civilization, the events that took place at Thermopylae have become highly mythologized in popular culture. What really happened during that fateful campaign? What were the historical events leading up to it? And how might the Western world look if the outcome had been different? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. Today, the pass at Thermopylae is a peaceful, windswept coastal plain that overlooks the Gulf of Malia along the east coast of Greece. Wedged between a mountain, Mount Calidromo, and a seaside highway known as Motorway 1, the longest road in the country, its tranquility betrays any hint of the mayhem and bloodshed that took place there way back in 480 BC, when it, as well as the rest of the nation, faced the very real threat of invasion by one of the largest and most powerful empires in the ancient world. While Greece at the time was comprised of multiple city-states, in which each urban center was essentially its own self-sustaining sovereignty, the Persian Empire of what's now Iran was a single unitary government ruled over by a mighty dynasty known as the Achaemenids. Founded 70 years earlier in 550 BC by Cyrus the Great, by 480 BC it had reached its height and greatest extent, stretching as far west as Thrace, present-day Bulgaria, and the Nile River Valley in Egypt, as far east as India, as far north as the steppes of the Stan countries, and as far south as the Arabian Peninsula. By the time its fifth ruler, Xerxes I, had ascended to the throne, he had begun setting his sights on Greece proper. But what was Xerxes, and therefore Persia's, motivation for invading the Greek mainland? The answer lies with the ruler who preceded him. Darius I, also known as Darius the Great, had expanded the Persian Empire considerably under his own rule. It was during this time that he first sent emissaries as ambassadors into Greece, offering a peaceful transfer of power if they were willing to present him with gifts and submit to his rule. Some city-states were willing to comply, while others, most notably Athens and Sparta, made examples of them. The Athenians tried and executed said emissaries while the Spartans simply tossed them down a well. Enraged by these blatant acts of defiance, Darius sent his armies to Macedon, an ancient kingdom in what's now northern Greece and southern Bulgaria, Thrace, Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, and the Greek Cycladic Islands in retaliation. Much to Darius's chagrin, however, the people of these territories, aided by the city-states of Athens and Eretria, revolted against his advancing armies in the so-named Ionian Revolt. For six years, between 499 and 493 BC, they did their best to quell Persian attempts at territorial expansion into Greece, but to no avail. In the end, Thrace and Macedon were forced into submission under the Persian crown. But then, in 490 BC, during the renowned Battle of Marathon, the Athenians gained the upper hand, ultimately driving the defeated Persians back to Asia Minor. This, combined with the outcome of the Ionian Revolt, or what many historians believe was the fuel that stoked the flames of what's become known as the Second Persian Invasion. Xerxes, therefore, was acting upon revenge, and swore to crush any and all Greek opposition to Persian rule, to teach them a lesson for their prior insubordination. In the intervening decade between 490 and 480 BC, the Persians organized themselves into a massive army whose sole purpose was to completely subjugate Greece. But such plans were postponed when Darius's Egyptian subjects revolted against him in 486. Whilst preparing to advance into Egypt, however, Darius himself passed away and the responsibility to both quell the Egyptian uprisings as well as conquer Greece fell onto Xerxes' shoulders. Xerxes quickly leapt into action, dealing a crushing blow to the Egyptian resistance. With his North African constituents out of the way, 
he turned his attention fully to the Greek mainland and prepared for a full-scale invasion. This required a great deal of planning, the like of which no other empire at the time was capable of completing. Stockpiling and conscription began almost immediately after the Egyptian campaign. Xerxes decided that the Hellespont would be the best way to reach Greece. Located in the northwestern part of present-day Turkey, it serves as the continental divide between Europe and Asia. The plan was to construct two large floating, or pontoon, bridges so that the armies could easily cross over into Europe. Once there, they would dig a canal across the isthmus of Mount Athos in northern Greece, thus granting them access to the rest of the country. These feats were unheard of at the time, but, in the span of six years, the Persians were able to accomplish them. Thus, in early 480 BC, they set about conquering their Greek adversaries. Word of the Persians' tactical and engineering feats had spread throughout Greece in the years leading up to the Battle of Thermopylae. In the mid-480s, Athens geared up for the impending invasion when one of its leading military figures, Themistocles, ordered the construction of a massive fleet of Greek longships, known as Tyremes. Skilled at naval combat, the Athenians nevertheless lacked the manpower to fight on two fronts, that is, both land and sea. An alliance with other Greek city-states had to be made. At the same time, Xerxes once more sent emissaries to various city-states across the nation, promising a peaceful transition of power if they submitted to Persian rule. Some complied without question, as they'd heard of the growing might of the Persian army. Still, Athens and Sparta continued to refuse, gathering support from formerly conflicted city-states. So it was that, in late 481 BC, a congress of city-states met in the Greek city of Corinth to officially form an alliance, with Athens and Sparta at the forefront of the group. This would prove a vital move, not just in the Battle of Thermopylae, but in its aftermath as well. By the early months of 480 BC, the Persian forces were well on the move. Aware of this, the aforementioned city-state congress reconvened at Corinth to propose an ideal location on the Greek mainland in which they could halt Persian advancement. The delegate from Thessaly suggested a place called the Vale of Tempe, located in the shadow of the mythic Mount Olympus. A force of 10,000 Greeks was dispatched to the area, only to be warned by King Alexander I of the neighboring kingdom of Macedon that the Persians could bypass it completely, opting instead to take a different nearby pass, one that could more readily and easily accommodate a greater amount of oncoming soldiers. Thus they nixed the Vale of Tempe, and, at Themistocles' suggestion, chose instead the mountain pass at Thermopylae, which was far narrower, and which they could defend from both land and sea. At last a plan was in motion, and in the nick of time, too, as the Persians by that point had crossed the Hellespont into Europe. History is quick to remember the sheer terror as well as the size and scope of the mighty Persian army as it advanced ever closer to Greece. The ancient Greek historian Herodotus wrote in his histories that their forces were so impressively large that they could drink whole rivers dry, and that the earth shook when they approached. While this may in part be an exaggeration, it nevertheless reveals that they were a formidable foe unlike any the ancient world had ever witnessed before. In preparation, cities along the Peloponnese, the peninsula that consists of the southern half of Greece, set out to defend Corinth as a last resort. In addition, the women and children of Athens were evacuated and sent to a small town further inland known as Troizen. The Greeks took no chances, knowing what was at stake. Though the Persians were slow to advance through Thrace and Macedon, it became clear by early August of 480 BC that invasion of Greece was imminent. The city-state congress in turn chose the delegation from Sparta, led by King Leonidas as the de facto military leaders of its army. It's important to note that Sparta at the time boasted the reputation not just in Greece, but throughout the ancient world as having the most skilled warriors and the most disciplined army. Having selected 300 of his finest warriors, most of whom formed the royal bodyguard and who had living sons, Leonidas knew that they, along with the 7,000-strong Greek army, would be vastly outnumbered by the Persians. As such, his plan was to trap the Persians in the narrow pass at Thermopylae and fight to the last man if needed. It was, in essence, a death sentence, but it was a risk and sacrifice all involved were willing to make. 
In mid-August, Leonidas, his 300 specially chosen Spartans and 7,000 troops, all of whom hailed from various city-states throughout the land, arrived at Thermopylae. Soldiers from nearby Phokis constructed a protective wall in the pass, meant to keep the Persians from advancing further. It was there that, by the end of the month, the Persians were first sighted across the Malian Gulf as they made their way towards Thermopylae. Xerxes sent an emissary ahead to negotiate with Leonidas, in which the Persian king promised the Greeks their freedom, the title of, quote, Friends of the Persian People, unquote, and land which, he claimed, was decidedly better than that in which they already lived. When the Spartan king declined, the emissary advised that they hand over their arms, quote-unquote, to which Leonidas famously replied in Greek, Molon labe, come and take them. When the emissary returned to Xerxes empty-handed, he knew that battle was imminent, though he waited four days for the assembled Greek forces to disperse. When they didn't, he made ready on the morning of the fifth day. Tradition dictates that the morning of September 8th, 480 BC, was mild and comfortable. The sun shined brightly on the eastern face of Mount Kalidromo, as well as the pass through it. The waters of the Malian Gulf were pristine, crystal clear, calm and tranquil. An ideal day under any other circumstances. Yet it was on this day that the fate of Greece, as well as the entirety of Western civilization, hung in the balance. No sooner had the morning sun risen languorously in the sky was it almost completely blocked out by the arrows of some 5,000 Persian archers as they began their assault on the assembled Greek forces. With their large shields and helmets to protect them, the arrows proved ineffective. Xerxes' next line of offense was to send wave after wave of Mede and Sicyon troops, each 10,000 strong, to beat the Greek phalanx into submission. Leonidas and his 300 Spartans stood shoulder to shoulder in the narrowest part of the pass in front of the defensive wall, which allowed them to use as little manpower as possible, thus presenting the Greeks with the opportunity to save their strength. With their longer spears and swords, the Greeks were able to overtake the Persians in hand-to-hand -hand combat. According to Ctesias, an ancient Greek historian, the first wave of Mede and Sicyon troops was, quote, cut to ribbons, unquote, in a matter of minutes, with the Spartans having only suffered two or three casualties. Having taken notice of the skill and ferocity of the Spartans' tactics, Xerxes sent in his best soldiers in a second assault that same day, an elite corps of 10,000 soldiers known as the Immortals, though they fared little better. By the end of the first day, the number of Persian dead was so high that it's said that Xerxes had risen from his vantage point three times in distress to survey the carnage. With the dawning of the second day, the Persian king once again sent his troops to attack the mountain pass based upon the assumption that the enemy were tired, bloodied, and recovering from the previous day's offensive. Much to his surprise, however, the Greeks continued to valiantly and ferociously fight back, hacking the oncoming Mede and Sicyon forces to bits. Upon receiving word of this, Xerxes called off the attack and retreated to his base camp in an attempt at a new strategy. But, as fate would have it, an opportunity landed in his lap that even he could never have foreseen. A man from the nearby city-state of Trachis, no out driven by greed and the desire for riches, presented himself to the Persian king and threw himself upon his mercy. The man, whose name was Ephialtes, spoke of a mountain path around Thermopylae, with which the Persians could gain the upper hand and quickly turn the tide of battle. He offered to lead the troops there and show them the way. A desperate Xerxes agreed, sending his commander, Hidarnes, and what was left of the immortals, some twenty thousand men, with Ephialtes under cover of night to scout the location. Then, on the third day, all hell broke loose for the Greeks. Having snuck during the night to a place above the pass, the Persians rained down upon them like the wrath of God. Leonidas, upon hearing the news from a runner that the pass had been compromised, called together a council of war, during which time many of the Greek soldiers argued in favor of retreat. After much consideration and deliberation, the Spartan king opted to stay with his men, as Spartan tradition forbade retreating in battle, but gave the others the option of retreating if they wished. A vast number of troops took him up on it, but some two thousand chose to stay behind and 
fight to the last man if necessary. Thus they marched out into the open to meet the Persians face to face. There they fought until every spear was shattered, at which time they switched to their swords and even resorted to their hands and teeth. By the end of that fateful third day, not a single one of the two thousand Greeks who chose to stay behind survived. Leonidas himself was killed, and Xerxes, in a fit of rage, ordered that his body be decapitated and crucified. Thanks to Ephialtes, who to this day is seen as a traitor in Greece, and whose name has become synonymous with nightmares and terror of every kind, the Persians were able to not only take the pass, but also advance well into mainland Greece. Following the Battle of Thermopylae, they sacked the cities of Plataea and Thespiae before turning their attention to Athens, which, by that time had been completely evacuated of its citizenry. Regardless, the Persians decimated it anyway. Bracing for an attack, the aforementioned cities of the Peloponnese made to defend Corinth and its Ithmus, destroying the only road that led there and rapidly constructing a wall across it to keep the hostiles out. In addition, a naval blockade was ordered to fend off the Persian navy. Off the coast of Salamis, a large island about 10 miles or 16 kilometers west of Athens, the Greek navy crushed the Persians in an intense naval battle that essentially eradicated the threat of invasion of the Peloponnese. Fearing that the Greeks would blockade the Hellespont and trap the Persians in Europe, Xerxes and the vast majority of his armies retreated back to Asia Minor in what's now Turkey, though he left a hand-picked force with his leading military commander, Mardonius, in an attempt to conquer Greece once more the following year in 479 BC. Greek and Persian factions clashed one last time near the besieged city of Plataea. There the Greeks won a decisive victory, at last bringing about an end to the Persian invasion of Greece. The Battle of Thermopylae was a major turning point in Greek history and has unanimously been deemed one of the most important moments in Western civilization. The events and sacrifices of that day continue to echo and reverberate down to our own time. Indeed, one only need look at government buildings and bodies in the Western world to see the obvious tributes to Greek architecture, society, and culture. Democracy itself is a Greek concept, and many of our political credos as well as philosophy can be traced back to Greek thinkers and politicians. Indeed, they lay down the groundwork for our very existence. The question is, then, how might our civilization look had the Persians ultimately won out? Well, for starters, the foundations of our society and its principles would perhaps be based upon their native faith, Zoroastrianism, which was the first monotheistic faith that predates Christianity, Islam, and even Judaism. Our buildings and monuments, too, would no doubt resemble those of pre-Islamic Iran, and it's quite possible that the Persian language or other Near Eastern tongues would be the standard. It's hard to say what exactly the Western world would look like, but it's also quite intriguing to guess and ponder. The heroic actions of Leonidas and his Greek forces are now celebrated the world over. As early as 440 BC, the first memorial to commemorate the fallen at Thermopylae was erected. It was a simple marble statue of a lion, said to represent Leonidas himself, and stood at the entrance to the mountain pass. As for Leonidas's remains, they were reclaimed by the Spartans a short time after the conflict and returned to Sparta, where they were given proper burial with full military honors and rights. It's hard to imagine that events which took place millennia ago could so greatly shape our modern world, but the bravery and valor at Thermopylae is proof positive that what we do has ripples and lasting effects. We must never take for granted what they did and sacrificed, nor take for granted what we do in our own time, for it just may shape the outcome of future generations. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear and would like to support this podcast to ensure future quality content, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. Just go to anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button. There you'll find three monthly support plans in three different tiers. Any and all help, even just listening, is greatly appreciated. Be sure to tune in next Thursday and every Thursday for a brand new episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next time.